You know, when I'm not uh, working here at the church as an intern, I work part-time as a ministry coordinator for a tech company in Garner. And part of my job there is to keep in touch with the various nonprofits and ministries that we support. And as I've been touching base with them over the past couple weeks, I've heard a similar idea expressed several times. You know, as I'm talking to them, they'll often say, who could have prepared for this time? Who could have prepared for this coronavirus? Has this season left you feeling unprepared? I mean, it's a jarring feeling when you find yourself uh, in a situation you don't know what to do. Maybe you've lost a job and you're not sure how to provide for your family. Or maybe you're working from home and trying to homeschool your children at the same time. There's a myriad of things that we could not have planned for. I mean, I don't think any of us could really have prepared for the situation that we find ourselves in now. Uh, normally, we'd be gathered together to reflect upon this Monday, Thursday, and yet we're gathered in our homes separately and apart. We'd normally be celebrating Easter together, but we celebrate this Easter weekend um, separate. And if you're like me, you may be tempted to wonder if God has left you unprepared for this season. Has God left us unprepared? Yet part of the beauty of Maundy Thursday is that we can see that Jesus knew he was heading to the cross. Being God in the flesh, he knew that the Son of Man was going to be crucified for the sins of mankind. Yet being fully man, he genuinely struggled with the task that was set before him. And while Jesus had forewarned the disciples that he would die, uh, the disciples did not really understand what Jesus meant. So on the eve of his death, Jesus spent this Monday Thursday preparing the disciples for his death and the suffering that they would face. In this love, he wanted them to know the Father's name. So in the chapters leading up to our text in John chapter 16, Jesus has been warning the disciples about, the, about his departure and persecution. Yet Jesus tells them to trust in him as the true vine of life, and he promises that the Holy Spirit would come. As he finishes his discourse with the disciples, Jesus gives them words of eternal hope. Jesus assures them that in the Father's love, and he tells them that he has overcome the world. So we'll look at Christ's encouragement in three parts. Uh, in verses 25 through 28, we'll see the unity of the Father. In verses 29 through 32, we'll look at the underwhelming faith of the, of the disciples. And finally, in verse 33, we'll look at the eternal hope that Christ has overcome. As we look at this text, I hope that you see that Christ has prepared the disciples with hope in their suffering, and we too have been prepared with the hope of the gospel. So now look down with me at verse 25. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, throughout his life and ministry, Jesus often spoke in parables, proverbs, figures of speech um, to describe the kingdom of God. And in the immediate context, Jesus has told them that he is going to prepare a place for them in his father's house, that he's the only way to the father, and that he is the true vine of life. He's told them that in a little while they will see him uh, no longer, and yet in a little while they will see him again. As you can see, these are all figures of speech that are meant to convey deep spiritual truths. And there, and there are many reasons why Jesus did this, uh, but the main reason he often gives is so that he who had ears to hear would truly hear and that they would respond to the good news. This meant that the Spirit had to eventually reveal the truths to them. So the disciples struggle to understand what Jesus means by these things and often express confusion, uh, either to themselves or to Jesus. Can you blame them? Uh, they believe that Jesus was the Messiah, 
which to them meant that he was going to free them from Roman captivity and be a, a leader of great might. They thought he would be like an Alexander the Great to conquer kingdoms for Israel. They had no concept of their Messiah dying on the cross. Although the Old Testament scriptures predicted that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the people missed it. They, they, they didn't understand their own uh, scriptures. So Jesus is telling them that the time is coming when, they, when he will tell them clearly about the Father. They can be encouraged that, to know that what is hazy in their minds will be made clear. They know the Father plainly and in turn know the meaning of the cross. As we receive the word, uh, we are blessed with the plain revelation of God in the scriptures, and we can have hope that we know God in the Bible. However, for those who have put their faith in Christ, we have more than knowledge about God. We have a direct relationship with him. Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 26. Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name. He's telling them that they will be able to pray to the Father in the name of Christ. He's expressing more than a tagline that we put at the end of our prayers. He's expressing the depth of access that we will have to the Father through Christ. It's like growing up, uh, my best friend's house always had people over. He had five brothers. His dad was a pastor in ministry, and people were always coming in and out of the house. And when his parents didn't know somebody, they might stop and ask and say, hey, uh, who are you? And they would often say, you know, oh, James or O'Brien invited me over. Um, and, and once they knew who and had brought them over, they were welcomed in with hospitality. And in a similar way, Jesus is telling us that if we go to the Father in the name of Christ, we will be accepted in his presence. We might take this for granted, but in this time, people didn't imagine just having unfettered access to the Father. Their own places of worship had a large veil that blocked off uh, the Holy of Holies and separated them from God. Yet here, Jesus promises soon that he will give them access to the Father himself. What beautiful fellowship Christ gives us with the Father. Yet Jesus gives what seems to be a strange caveat here by saying, And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. At a first glance, this seems odd. Didn't he just say that he would give the disciples access to the Father? Is Jesus saying that he does not intercede for us? Well, this can't be the case because Romans 8.34 says Jesus is interceding for us. And Hebrews 7.25 says Jesus lives to make intercession for those who have faith in him. So what does this mean? I would agree with uh, theologian D.A. Carson who says that uh, Jesus wants his followers to understand that the phrase, in my name, does not mean that they are thereby distanced from God. It does not mean that they are uh, restricted to asking Jesus for things. And he conveys the request to the Father. Jesus is actually emphasizing the relationship we have with the Father. It's not as though Jesus stands in front of the Father's door, communicating our desires, but blocking our access. On the contrary, through Jesus, the Father draws us into his chambers. And this becomes clearer when we read verse 27, where Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Again, he's emphasizing the depth of the Father's love for us in Christ. The Father does not begrudgingly love us as though we luckily guessed the Jesus password. No, if you have put your love in Jesus and believed that he came from the Father, God showers his love upon you and adopts you into his family. Notice that these are key elements of the gospel. For those who have truly believed in the gospel, love Jesus and believe that he has come from God. So in the gospel, the Father loves us and grants us access to him. 
And with this promise, Jesus prepares his disciples for his coming death by telling them that they will soon know about the Father plainly and by reminding them of the Father's love for them in Christ. In verse 28, Jesus once again stresses that he came from the Father and came into the world and that he will leave and go to the Father. So as Jesus prepares his disciples for, their, for his depart, departure, he stresses that through him they will have greater access to the Father. In this we can rejoice because through Christ we too know the Father plainly and can, can rejoice in his love for us. So now as we turn to our second point, how do the disciples respond? Um, the disciples respond with a fairly underwhelming confession of faith. And look down at verses uh, 29 and 30. In verse 29, the disciples say, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. You can see a sense of relief that they have that Jesus does not seem to be speaking in parables or figures of speech anymore. So they continue in verse 30 by saying, Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Their, prof their profession acknowledges the ultimate wisdom and um, that they believe that Jesus came from God. So why does this profession seem underwhelming? Well, they do not seem to grasp the weight of what Jesus is telling them. First, they assume that Jesus has already spoken plainly, even though he had told them that the hour is coming when he will speak to them plainly. Also, their actions show that they do not grasp what Jesus means. Uh, for example, Peter has told Jesus that he would be with him even unto death. Yet we know that he will deny Jesus three times this evening. This is a common theme throughout Christ's ministry. Uh, throughout the Gospels, we see the disciples and others uh, make these kind of proclamations of faith, yet their faith does not endure trial. Again, though, can you blame them? I mean, I can't imagine how hard it must have been to comprehend the depth of what Jesus was trying to tell them. For though they are with him for this Passover meal, in, in a few hours he will be crucified before them. Think about your life. Um, how many times have you thought that you understood something so clearly only to be utterly humbled? And, and that's why we need to consider our faith and, and ask that God search our hearts. We can mean well. I mean, there's no reason to think that the disciples didn't mean well. Um, but they just they didn't understand. They, they thought they understood more than they did. And, and notice how Jesus responds to them as well. In, in verse 31, Jesus says, Do you now believe? You can sense a sort of disappointment in, it, in his response. Like, after all this time, you now finally believe in me? And then in verse 32, he appears to question their faith by saying, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. He is telling the disciples that they will desert him uh, that very night. And while the disciples again seem to have confidence in their faith, Jesus knows that as suffering comes, they will go their own way. He's likely alluding to the Old Testament prophet uh, Zechariah, who says in Zechariah 13:7 that the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus, the chief shepherd, prepares to be struck as the sheep scatter. It, it's, it's quite sad when you think about it. I mean, Jesus is is there with those who are closest to him on the eve of his death, and he knows that they will desert him and leave him in his moment of trial. They will deny him even. And though it may seem discouraging to think about how the disciples will desert Jesus, we should also take a moment to be encouraged by the goodness and the grace of God. As many have pointed out before, it is astonishing that God used men like this who deserted the Son of God to establish the church. 
The very men who walked beside Jesus and wrote the pages of the New Testament had clay feet just like you and me. And you see this throughout all of the scriptures. I mean, from Abraham to Moses to David, the scriptures are full of flawed men like you and me who God used for his purposes to show the wonder of his grace. So this should remind us that the spread of the gospel and the survival of the church does not depend on us. It depends on the work of the Spirit who builds and sustains God's people. Although the disciples will will leave him, will Jesus actually be alone? No. For he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus trusts his Father to be with him in this trial. Though sinful man would uh, turn away from him, he knows his Father will never abandon him. Given that Jesus is God in the flesh, um, it may be easy to think, well, of course, Jesus has confidence in the Father. Yet Yet I would remind you that soon after this, Luke records in his gospel that Jesus will be in agony and his sweat will be like drops of blood falling to the ground. In fact, Jesus will cry out to the Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is not proclaiming some kind of ethereal, stoic faith in the Father. He knows that he will suffer greatly, but he clings to his Father and knows that his Father is the one who will sustain him. It is the Father who will ultimately glorify His Son and bring about our salvation. So the disciples do not understand the weight of their profession. And while they probably mean well, their faith will prove shallow as they will desert Jesus. However, as Christ predicts this, He turns to His Father for eternal hope. He knows that His Father will carry Him through. And though Jesus will suffer to the point of death, praise God that the Father will carry Him through for our salvation. So now, as, as that Jesus has proclaimed his faith in the Father, how will he finish this discourse with the disciples? In our third point, Jesus uh, gives us words of eternal hope, explaining why he has said everything he has over the past few chapters. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And some of the last words that Jesus says before going to the cross, he tells them to trust in him, for he has overcome the world. It's astounding that Jesus says these things before going to the cross. His faith that the Father will carry him through is clear, and he wants his disciples to know that he is Lord. In this one verse, Jesus tells the disciples three foundational truths that they will write about and live and and preach about throughout their ministry and throughout the pages of the New Testament. Uh, First, the disciples may have peace in Christ. Think about all of the things he has told them over this discourse. He's told them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's promised to send the Holy Spirit to be a helper to guide them. He's told them that their sorrow will will turn into joy. And he's encouraged them to ask for anything in his name that their joy may be full. All these truths and promises come from the peace that Jesus will provide by suffering on the cross. For in his crucifixion, we will be reconciled to God the Father and have peace with him. May we turn to this wonderful grace in Christ. What love is it that Christ would spend the hours before his death assuring the disciples that they can have peace in God the Father and in him? And if you have truly put your faith in Jesus, this is what gives you peace in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering. This is what prepares you uh, for the trials that we face today. 
I think about how the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, and, and by this, he means that he can go through all the sufferings of this world because Christ sustains him. For Jesus cares about his people and desires that they would have peace. And if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, I would ask you, where do you go to find peace? Where do you go to have your sins forgiven? Where can you go for eternal life? Put your faith in Jesus and in his love, and he will give you peace. The second thing that this verse tells us, uh, and that Christ tells them, is that they can expect tribulation and trial in this world. Although he is with them and he will give the disciples peace, they should expect trials and suffering. And, And of course, this is what they experience for the rest of their lives. As believers in Christ, we too should not be surprised by the evils and suffering in our world. For we know our world is broken, shattered, and marred by sin. We know that Adam and Eve sinned against God, and mankind, by nature, became sinful as a result of that fall. I don't think I have to work too hard to convince you of this. I mean, we all face suffering and know people who are suffering. And contrary to some popular preaching, this is especially true for followers of Christ. I mean, 2 Timothy uh, 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's just one of the several passages that teach the same idea. So we should expect trials and tribulations in our life. This doesn't mean we become numb to it or become cynical. Um, We shouldn't lament and weep over the fallenness of the world. However, Jesus says this to his disciples so that they would be prepared to suffer well uh, and not be caught off guard from the evils of the world. It It may not seem encouraging to know that there is suffering coming, but as a, good, as a good surgeon prepares his patients uh, with honesty about the painfulness of the surgery, so Jesus prepares his disciples by warning them about their trials. So let's be prepared to suffer well. And the third thing, and the third thing Jesus tells his disciples is to take heart because he has overcome the world. It's hard to overestimate the magnificence and the wonder of these words. Jesus has not even gone to the cross, but he is telling his disciples that he has overcome the world. This is not some arrogant claim. Uh, He knows that he is going to die soon. He knows that he will drink the bitter cup of God's wrath. Yet he knows that by drinking the wrath uh, of the Father, God will save his people. He goes to the cross knowing that the Father's plan for salvation will be complete. And by trusting in the Father, Jesus knows that he will, be seen, he will be seated at the right hand of his glorious Father. So what does he tell the disciples to do? The ESV says to take heart. Uh, other translations say take courage or be of good cheer. It's, it's a proclamation for courageous joy. Uh, what's, what's amazing about this is it, it's not in a motivational speech, uh, you know, like a pep rally talk to try and encourage people to hopefully win. It's a comp, it's a a proclamation of something that's already happened. Christ has already overcome the world. This is something the disciples can hold on to now. It's the reason why we can endure suffering in this reality. And the disciples can have courage and joy knowing that their Savior is victorious. And what does it mean that Jesus has conquered the world? Uh, This is a proclamation of the Lordship of Christ over all the principalities of evil. It means that Jesus rules over all things, including the evil things of the world. Yet, this is for our sake. Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, already ruled over all things and sustained all things. 
However, in going to the cross and drinking the wrath of the Father for our sin, Jesus conquers the punishment we deserve. He is in control over all that happens. Think about all the things in the world that, could, that the world could throw at him. Uh, temptation, disease, corruption, majestic storms, demons, even death itself. There is nothing that can defeat our Savior. There is nothing that even comes close. So as we close this Maundy Thursday and head into Good Friday, I would encourage you to prepare yourself with the words that Christ gave his disciples. Remind yourself uh, of the unity, unity that you have with the Father through Jesus and examine your proclamation of faith. Do you profess Christ with your lips but lack understanding of the depth? Are you ready to suffer for your faith? And though we may not know how we could respond in every, every situation, we can turn to God in our prayers and ask Him to grow us in genuine faith. Ask God to prepare you for suffering. Remember that Christ has overcome the world. All of our trials, all of our sickness, all our strife, all our pain has been overcome by the Son of God who took on flesh to save us. Though Good Friday is coming, we can have faith that Jesus has overcome the world. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we have access to you, that through your Son we are adopted as children, and that we can come to you in prayer and, and guidance. And Lord, though we face uh, trying days and tribulations and suffering, we pray that you would help us to take heart, to trust in your Son and hold fast to him, so that we may know you more and glorify you. And we put our trust in you, Jesus, who has overcome the world for our sake. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your glorious Son's name. Amen.